Hello, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined today by editorial associate Abigail Kane. Hey, Abby. Hey, Isaac. And senior editor Tess Thacker. Hey, Tess. Hey, Isaac. So we're going to be talking a bit about the labels that we apply to artists, emerging, political, feminist. These are just a few of them. Um, We're going to think a little bit about if they're helpful, what they do, and how they can be better used. But before we talk about any of that, Tess and Abby are going to leave for a minute, and we're going to be joined by Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Art Basel just wrapped up on Sunday, and we're eager to get his thoughts on the fair and what happened. So, hey, Alex, how are you? Hey, Isaac, how's it going? I'm doing well. Where are you right now? I am in Berlin uh, for the week after Basel. I'm in the Berlin artsy office, uh, visiting some colleagues here and catching up with some old contacts, seeing some galleries in Berlin, which would be nice. Cool. Well, we're honored to have you as the first call-in guest ever on the artsy podcast. I think I think it's a good, good time to give it a try. It's big. It's big. Yeah. So can you tell me... You know, you were at Art Basel all last week. What were the vibes like there? What did it feel like? It was good. I mean, I think everybody went into the fair with a little bit of apprehension or jitters about what might happen, um, as we've been talking about a lot, and um, has only recently gotten worse uh, as the Brexit approaches this week. Things in the market at large, um, not just the art market, are a little bit shaky at the moment. And so I think people kind of came in with modest expectations or or measured expectations compared to previous years about what might happen this year. But ultimately, I think everything panned out really well. And people said that some, I mean, some galleries were saying they had their best art puzzle ever. Um, Others were saying it at least exceeded their expectations. So so all told, uh, a successful fair. So what's it like for those of us who have never actually been there? Because the building itself looks incredibly beautiful. Like what, what are the, can you just sort of give us the feeling of what it's like to be at one of these fairs like Art Basel and Basel? I mean, Art Basel and Basel is a pretty particular fair in that it's it's very serious compared to a lot of the fairs that have come around and, you know, become part of this event landscape. Um, you go to Miami, even Art Basel's Miami Fair, and there's a lot more emphasis placed on parties and the ancillary events around town and whatnot. Basel's a very serious place. It's where the art world comes to do kind of its biggest business of the year and really focus on the art as much as on kind of all the other stuff that's going on around town. So you mentioned it, the art. What Did you have any particular standout favorite booth or thing that really caught your attention while you were there? Well, one of the things that stuck out to me this year um, and was kind of also particular to the market situation um, and some of the larger cultural and, and political things going on is that there's a kind of increase in political work at the fair itself. A couple of works in particular, Olaf Metzl's uh, Sammelstelle from 1992, which is at Berlin's Ventup Gallery, which it's a, basically a holding pen for immigrants that he created in 1992 when Germany was having an influx of migrants from the former Yugoslavia. Ventrup decided to remount it at the fair this year, which, you know, obviously in response to the migration crisis currently in Europe, and really kind of drew some attention to those issues that I think oftentimes are kind of not as well represented at art fairs as, as maybe they are in galleries or museums. So that was really nice to see. Also, uh, just kind of down the aisle, at James Fuentes, uh, the Jonas Mikas solo booth, both these were in the statement section of the fair, which he had a series of 14 of a series of 37 photographs that he had made while he was in a displaced person's camp in the 1940s in Germany. Those were also just kind of breathtaking, both for like some of the struggles that they portrayed, but also for some of the kind of just everyday life. 
I've, I've always been curious about like how political work like that really fares at an art fair. Um, and you kind of touched on this in your piece, but did, did, did those sort of political pieces find buyers or were they sort of more sort of speak to the way in which art fairs are, you know, having a curatorial mission that goes beyond just trying to sell something? I'm not sure, to be honest, if either of those sold. They weren't in my final report, but I do think that this year was a particularly good year to show things like this. There's a there's an increasing focus on works of substance and quality. And while, like, obviously, if you're showing painting, that's going to be an easier sell, um, especially, you know, a very high quality painting. But I also think there's a little bit more appetite for these slightly more thoughtful, uh, deep artworks um, that are engaging with kind of salient issues of our time than there might have been kind of at the peak of the recent economic boom. Now that we're seeing a slight slowing down of things, people are a little bit more introspective. And I think that's, you know, for art in particular, uh, I think that's really a good thing and that we'll continue to see increasingly interesting work being made now that may may or may not happen at the kind of peak of an economic um, economic cycle. Yeah, and one of the things that you, you also tied in economics into what's being shown in the amount of modern work that was on view. You wrote about that a little bit. Can you maybe, so, so for those of us who aren't necessarily familiar with, you know, what, like the trajectory of our Basel and Basel and these floor plans and, and modern work versus contemporary, can you sort of trace, trace those relationships? Sure. Last year, they did a major shakeup of the ground floor of the fair to place all the dealers that were focusing on modern art in one side of the main floor. So basically what you had happening in the past, you know, maybe 10 years is that even those dealers that were showing modern were also trying to sneak contemporary artworks into their booths because everybody only wanted contemporary, the hottest, youngest artists with, you know, the most exciting trajectory. I think starting two years ago, there was an increased focus on that. Obviously, there was a lot of interesting things happening in the secondary market for modern work. And now in particular, I think people are looking increasingly at art not as necessarily an investment in terms of getting a return, but as a store of value and as something that you can um, really hold on to that will hold its value, that has a substance behind it, that has a certain provenance. Um, and modern work plays particularly well to that. Like there's a connection here maybe between global economic jitters and the desire to put money somewhere safe. And like a, a work of modern art of Picasso is relatively a safe investment. I mean, I think we wouldn't want to give any investment advice, but... Um, <laughs> that is Germany, not investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> Germany took its rates uh, negative on Tuesday just before the fair opened. And I, I was talking to somebody, an investor here last night, uh, who was saying that, you know, investors right now are, are looking for basically anywhere to put their money that isn't, you know, just in a bank account. So I think, you know, that's when alternative asset classes get increasingly interesting to people. Um, exotic asset classes are kind of like farther farther reaching alternatives like art are still something a little bit out of that you know it's it's not it's not something that you can ac- actively price all the time necessarily but we do see that you know people can feel pretty confident that if a certain artist market has maintained at a certain level for you know a good amount of time and that a piece has been bought and sold several times in an upward trajectory that nothing that's that's going to happen in the next few months should radically upset that on the long term. All right. Well, before we leave you, since you're not going to be in the office for our white wine segment, I thought maybe we could get a, a mini one from you. Well, what are you looking forward to doing uh, while you're in Berlin this week? 
I'm looking forward to a lot of things, but actually I'll talk a little bit about it. I um I went to the Berlin Biennale yesterday. Still have a couple more things to see, but really just fantastic show that I think has gotten a little bit of a bad rap in some parts or a little bit of a kind of surface estimation. So writing a piece about that, excited to publish, publish that later in the week. Other than that, I mean, Berlin has some of the best galleries in the world. So excited to go catch up with them, see what they have on view. I think some of the shows that open for Gallery Weekend Berlin at the beginning of May um, are, are just reaching their end and people are opening up new shows. So uh, it should be, should be an exciting week. All right. Well, I'm glad we could continue the tradition where you're always traveling or about to travel. So, But now I'm actually not in the office. Now so you're actually not in the office. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks. And now we're back joined by Abby and Tess. Welcome back, guys. Hi. Glad to be back. Great. So we're going to be talking about labels which are a little controversial. Many artists hate them, but they pop up as organizing principles for shows, be they geographical, stylistic, gender, um, descriptions of historical periods, and of course, in articles on Artsy. So the discussion kind of recently began here anyway, more specifically around Cindy Sherman. Abby, as is so often the case, you wrote an article that kind of brought up this topic for us here, um, looking at sort of the complex relationship between Cindy Sherman and not so much feminism, but the label and the overt positioning her work in relationship to like feminism. Right. Well, I mean, it didn't start out necessarily about the label. It actually just started out like looking at how Cindy Sherman and feminism related. But um, the more research I did, the more I realized that there was sort of this inherent tension between academics and feminist scholars looking at this work and seeing a lot of very rich material mm-hmm. um, to you know use their their frameworks to to observe and then Cindy Sherman being like that's not what I was thinking about while I made the work right and I feel like anyone who's been to an artist Q&A has had that experience where someone like gets up at like preface their question with like this really long kind of theoretical background and the artist is like I don't think about yeah that. I mean <laughs> and also in Cindy Sherman's case I think her taking a slightly slippery position um, on, you know, with regard to whether or not she identifies as a feminist um, is sort of inseparable from the nature of her work, which, mm-hmm. I mean, the power of her work lies in that blurry line between mm-hmm. whether she's amplifying these sort of female stereotypes or critiquing them. Right. Like when she, you know, puts on these characters is, is yeah she's a chameleon and so she what she's doing is adopting multiple different guises mm-hmm. um, but Tess I know that you think that whether you know, I think something oh here we go I know <laughs> that you think that whether or not she's been so influential to feminist artists that she's kind of yeah I think it doesn't really matter at this point whether or not she identifies as a feminist because that's sort of the power and value that's been ascribed to her work as it's been canonized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it goes without saying at this point that she's been incredibly important for women and influential for feminist artists of you know, future generations. I just want to take a step back for a second. So we, we've been talking about the label of a feminist artist, but I'm curious a little bit about what that, what that actually means means you know like what are we when we when we just sort of say that we're all sort of saying as though we all know we're like all talking about the same thing what criteria allows us to apply a label to an artist i mean i think in the case of feminism you know it implies a political position Mm -hmm. so when you organize an all-women show for instance 
that is communicating a political urgency, and that's why it gets attention, and that's good. Um, but on the flip side, you know, that can be very reductive, and it makes the artwork secondary to gender in certain mm -hmm. cases. And so that's when these labels become really problematic for artists and why artists, you know, over the decades have said, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not a female, you know, a feminist artist. I'm not a black artist. And obviously that there are like different types of labels as well. So there's like, you know, ideological or political labels, feminist or political artists. There's what you're sort of talking about, you know, physical qualities of around the work, mm -hmm. abstract, figurative. Um, and then there's geography, race. Like there's so many different ways to approach this. Under what circumstances do you think it's helpful to actually label an artist? Historically, it's been essential, you know, for right. uh, underrepresented like artists in providing platforms for them when no one else was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I spoke to the gallerist Michael Rosenfeld, the New York gallerist, when I was researching a story on advocates for African-American artists. And he organized a series of shows between 1993 and 2003 called African-American Masterworks that expressly was there to highlight African-American artists. And that series has been recognized for driving a huge amount of momentum across the market and in institutions too to um, usher these artists into the canon. So, you know, when no one else is doing it, then those labels become really powerful in, in sort of driving momentum. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that what, what's really interesting about labels is also taking a step back and thinking about them, what, like why we're using certain ones. And of course, if you look back at history, there are some truly terrible labels that kind of reveal the thinking about entire continents at the time. You look at primitive as a label as sort of talking about tr like quote unquote African um, motifs appearing in works by Picasso. I mean, now that is like a totally admonished word, but it reveals how people genuinely thought about this sort of thing. Yeah, so the interesting is like historical. And objects. I will say you still see that word sometimes, mm. you know, it takes a really long time to um, communicate to the wider public what is dangerous about these labels. So they yeah. stick around and I think that's the power of them and it's sort of the danger of them. Right. Well, and I thought it, so when you're going back to like the different types of categories, I read this interesting piece over the weekend about the label outsider art and how you could have out, artists that made work that maybe fit the outsider canon, but they were, you know, they got an MFA from Yale. And outsider artists are typically, just for those who don't know, like outsider artists are typically those who are considered self-taught. Um, there's certain associations with mental disability there. Mm -hmm. The sort of stereotype is artists works in like cabin backwoods by themselves for a really long time and then dies and then all this work is discovered. Collector buys it, ends up in the MoMA somehow. After. So that's that's sort of like the trajectory of an outsider artist. But yeah, it is it is really problematic. It is really reductive. And I wrote this piece on Lee Godi who has been labeled an outsider artist quite a bit, which is funny because it's sort of implied like it sort of implies that they exist outside of the normal machinations of the art world. But in fact, she was like very astute about how her work was sold and marketed. Um, and yeah, it, it feels just like a broken term. Like it doesn't feel helpful or practical in any way. Well, I just think, I think it's an interesting distinction between labeling someone's work and labeling someone's essential characteristics as a person, mm -hmm. you know, cause outsider art, if you're saying outsider, like it has something inherently to do with their biography versus just with the quality mm -hmm. of their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways it can really like, 
I think labels can be thought of as helpful if they help us kind of analyze a work, you know, like this is political, this is a political artist, but I don't see that here. So you think critically about it. But with a label like Outsider, sometimes it's like you see the work second. You think this person was homeless or, you know, this person had a mental disability and you superimpose that on the quality so that like you can't ever actually see it. Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, I personally feel like the biographies of artists are important in understanding mm-hmm. the work and it's something that interests me a lot. And this is one of the problems that gets ascribed to the outsider term a lot is that it elevates the biography over the work. But, you know, just to problematize that, I feel like the biography is really essential and that's sort of what interests me most about art is that it's a form of communication and an expression from an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to know about that individual and what their background is and, you know, what position they're taking, what has influenced them. It's their story, you know, in abstract form. Yeah, and I think that that sort of desire raises really interesting questions about how one, I mean, how we all as writers position an artist when we write about them, but also how a curator who has to show, you know, a survey of a huge swath of time is able to effectively communicate certain necessary pieces of information to mm-hmm. an audience that isn't, you know, Abby, you were saying like, there's some study that shows that people aren't going to read more than 50 words. Of oh, yeah. No, I found this article that the the MoMA has a department that like studies how long people are going to stand in front of a work of art. So 15 words per wall text, I think 100 words per like wall you know the big wall text mm-hmm. in a room and maybe a hundred no 300 words for like the intro paragraph to an yeah. exhibition and so you have to break an artist down in some way to fit them into 50 words i think maybe it would be like labels would be less reductive if people felt more comfortable in a space of a museum like challenging what they're being told you know like you go see hans Hacke and they're like this is a political artist and you're like well he doesn't think of himself that way why not you know and like you you have a, a, a more sort of critical think about the label. Yeah, like he's yeah. he's generally considered a political artist or something as opposed right. to he is a political artist. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think museums have been sort of making a push to um, set themselves up as sites of discourse rather than delivering pedagogical information and, and offering information as a statement rather than a question. I think they're doing this more and more with social media initiatives and, um, and also in, in wall text, which I know are a constant source of discussion within institutions, how they're framing this information. But I agree that that it it is important to be asking questions rather than offering statements. Yeah, and I think one of the most uh, obvious examples of labels being used as kind of organizing principles is all women group shows, which you're seeing more and more of in galleries to like mix criticism, but but generally sort of a recognition that this is needs to happen. Why do you think it's happening right now? So, I mean, you know, I think if you were to take a more cynical position, feminism has become trendy Mm. to some extent. Um, And I think that's also an example of the way in which a label can be sort of a bit hollow and dangerous is, um, you know, is this, are we seeing more all women shows because there is really uh, meaningful sort of political intent to continue the work that's been done, you know, in the 70s and 80s and onwards? Or is this more about a market fad? And I think that's, you know, the concern is that is Hauserworth and Schimmel launching their new L.A. space with an all-women show for the right reasons, I guess. But, I mean, if more people are talking about it, I don't know, is that a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's clearly a lot of work still to be done here and, you know, all the stats bear this out. 
And, you know, I mean, I've I've spoken to feminist artists like Laurie Simmons, who says, you know, that in many ways the landscape is worse for women now than it was when she was, you know, hmm. first making work in the Why? 70s. Well, she said, you know, that she felt that the social media revolution um, has created this landscape in which women are constantly self-editing and perfecting mm. themselves. Um, huh. I mean, we were specifically talking about sort of body like image and kind of stuff. Oh, body image. Bump, okay. Body image, yeah. So clearly there's a lot of work still to be done. I just think the shows need to, uh, they need to be saying something new and taking a real position. Um, before we end this week's podcast, we'll tell you a little bit about where we're going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week. So Tess, what are you up to? Uh, I'm going to be going on Thursday to one of a series of um, town hall meetings that the feminist artist Martha Rossler has organized at Mitchell Innes and Nash Ooh. Gallery. Um, and so these are discussions about art, art and gentrification, which, you know, I think the irony of hosting that discussion in an art gallery in Chelsea isn't lost on anyone. Yeah. Uh, Can I come? That sounds please. fun. Yeah, yeah. The first one was pretty good. People got angry. Oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> okay, Abby. Uh, let's see. Well, I think I'm going to be headed to Pioneer Works all the way in Red Hook um, for the Derek Adams show. Are on. you going to take the ferry? No, I will probably take the bus. A little bit less glamorous, but... That's a mistake. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. We'll talk about it off off air. Isaac, where are you headed? Um, I'm actually going to be going to Philadelphia this weekend, and I'm going to be checking out the Barnes Museum, which is one of my... You know, I never get tired of going there. It's such a great... It's, it's like this... It's like this museum that just that moved from outside of philadelphia inside that shows the collection of albert barnes which is like this incredibly sort of diverse historical selection of works and the thing is he like had a really keen eye so he juxtaposes everything really interestingly so you'll have like renoir next to like a medieval woodcut and there'll be some sort of thematic relationship between the two or formal so it creates so like it's really the collection of one guy it's the collection of one guy yeah he was like was this he like a wealthy industrial oh yeah, yeah classic everyone was a wealthy industrialist but um <laughs> he would like teach his workers art history and things huh you know anyway all right that's what i'll be doing so thanks so much to abby and tess for joining us this week thank you yeah. isaac please remember to rate and review us on itunes if you haven't already it helps other people find the show Thanks to our producer, Joe Sykes. Our intro music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time. <laughs>